Welcome to the Payoff Pitch presented by DNL Window Tinting on Fanimal Radio. DNL Window Tinting, we put the shades on the sun. Once again, I'm Paul Valley, and joining us today is going to be Matt Taylor from RoarFrom34.com. He'll be joining us in a little bit after our first segment. Uh, the Orioles lost last night 6-3 to to the Tampa Bay Rays. Asher Wojciechowski, who pitched for Norfolk last year and then uh, went to the Indians in the offseason. The Orioles traded to get him back from the Indians earlier this week. Uh, they traded cash considerations for Wojciechowski. He came up from Norfolk yesterday and made the start. And through the first five innings, he had pitched pretty well. He gave up two runs, had walked one, and struck out six. But then that sixth inning, he gave up a leadoff, a leadoff single, uh, then a walk, got an out, and then he gave up a two-run base hit. Uh, left the game giving up four runs and five and a third with six strikeouts and the two walks. Um, the Orioles' bullpen, they, added, they allowed the Rays to get some more tack-on runs. Uh, which is something Brandon Hyde has really been preaching. He doesn't want to see from the ball club. They have to pitch better. The team just has to pitch better. And basically, that kind of put the game out of reach. Francisco hit a two-run homer his fifth and 16 games. He hit that in the ninth inning to make it a 6-3 ball game. But ultimately, the Orioles couldn't make the comeback, uh, and they lost their third straight game after winning back-to-back 13-0 games against the Indians, which was a major league record for um, back-to-back shutouts with at least 13 runs scored. No other team in the history of baseball had done that. So the Orioles, in a season of lows and downs, made history for prosperity uh, this past weekend. So that was nice to see, and they actually got their first series win since the end of April. So that was nice to see also. Uh, But... Out of July 2nd, that was not the best thing we saw um, yesterday. Azure Wojciechowski making his debut for the Orioles and the weekend prior and all that. That wasn't the best thing that we saw from the past few days. The July 2nd international signing period started, and the Orioles signed 27 players out of that international signing period yesterday. They had never signed more than 20 in any year since 2014. They signed 20 in 2015 for an entire year, and they signed 27 players in one day. Uh, Mostly 16-year-old players. They they took 16 of them out of the Dominican Republic, eight out of Venezuela, and then uh, three other players out of um, places like Aruba and Puerto Rico and stuff like that. Um, They're all mostly 16-year-old kids. Uh, the oldest is Johan Baroa out of the Dominican Republic, a left-handed pitcher. He's going to be 19 next month. That is the oldest player that they signed. Um, signing bonuses were available for Dominican Republic players, usually about the $400,000 to $450,000 range, some of them about $250,000. Um, but they weren't released for the Venezuelan players because there's safety concerns, and that's really sad to hear that you can't say how much money you gave to a certain player because he came out of Venezuela and there's safety concerns for his family and for the player himself because he could get robbed. And that really speaks to you know the, the travesties that go on in third world countries. But that's a topic for another day that we won't get into. But uh, Orioles signed 27 players. That's a big thing here. They're all likely to play in the Dominican Summer League. Steve Molesky did a really great job reporting on this yesterday. Um, from Steve Molesky says, according to a club press release, the class is led by outfielder Luis Gonzalez, left-handed pitcher Luis Ortiz, and shortstop Lionel Sanchez. Uh, Gonzalez, he's a large frame, 16-year-old um, outfielder. He's got good power from the left side. He barrels up balls routinely. 
And this is a guy who could turn into an impact bat that plays all three outfield spots. Again, just 16 years old, so probably two to three years away from even being into the Orioles minor league system. But that's a great player that the Orioles signed there. Left-handed pitcher Luis Ortiz, according to Steve Muskie, has command of three pitches, a fastball that exceeds 90 already. Again, we're talking about a kid who's 16, 17 years old, and he's touching the low 90s already as a left-handed arm. He's only going to get stronger, only going to throw harder. He also has a curveball with sharp break that projects as an out pitch and a changeup that's delivered with consistent arm speed that keeps hitters off balance. And the most important thing here is that he throws strikes and he's not afraid to challenge hitters. More great stuff from Steve Molesky there. And then finally, Leonel Sanchez. Uh, he's a shortstop that has a strong arm and smooth footwork that allows him to get into a good fielding position. He's a right-handed hitter with gap-to-gap -gap power and the ball seems to jump off his bat, according to Steve Molesky. So three really good signings that very young guys who are going to be playing the Dominican Summer League probably the next two to three years before they even start to see low A ball for the Orioles. But again, 27 players signed in one day. The Orioles are putting a, a stamp on that international market, something they have not done in the past. Being highly lauded throughout the field, uh, as far as pundits are concerned, saying that they used to see maybe one or two Orioles guys at these tryouts, and now they're seeing you know eight to ten orange shirts in the crowds there, um, which is what you really want to hear. And this is what Mike Elias said when he took over the job that the Orioles are going to you know have a really big presence in the international market. And after that first day, 27 players, he is really uh, sticking to that and you know living up to the hype there. So um, speaking of Nice bats. We talked about um, Francisco hitting the two-run homer in the ninth inning the other day, or last night, excuse me. Francisco uh, in his last five games has three home runs. He didn't play for a week and then came out and had a, you know, three or four-hit game with five RBIs, and it was a three-hit game, but he got robbed of a second home run in that first 13 nothing victory against the Indians. And he's hitting 265 with a 379 on base percentage, 673 slugging percentage, an OPS of 1053. Anything above a thousand is huge. Uh, so his OPS is 10.53 right now. Far cry from last season when he hit 181 for the Orioles uh, and 2.42 at Norfolk. Career lows across the board there. Really come back, coming back and showing why he was one of the Orioles' top prospects just a few short years ago. Um, but again, the Orioles back-to-back six-to-three losses against Tampa Bay, where the bullpen was really the reason why they couldn't. I mean, the bats have to show up, but the bullpen kind of put the game out of reach in both games. Uh, we're going to get a, a word from our sponsor, but we're going to talk about those games with Matt Taylor from RoarFrom34.com after this word from our sponsors, DNL Window Tinting. In your home, sunshine can stream in through windows, bringing a cheerful feel and warmness to any room. Sometimes, though, it brings in too much warmth, even harmful ultraviolet light and solar energy that can raise energy bills, drain the color from your fabrics and furnishings, and cast a blinding glare on your television or computer screens. DNL Window Tinting can protect your home from all of this while saving you money on energy bills. Start saving today by calling DNL at 410-941-2942. That's 410-941-2942. Welcome back to the Payoff Pitch, presented by DNL Window Tinting on Fanimal Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Valley, and joining me from RoarFrom34.com is Matt Taylor. Matt, how are we doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show. We've been trying to get you on for a little bit here, and this was the first time our schedules worked out, so we're happy to have you. Um, Orioles, in a season of really low points, they set a major league record for prosperity over the weekend on Friday and Saturday. They won back-to-back -back games by 13 to nothing scores. Became the first team in major league history 
to win back-to-back shutout scoring at least 13 runs or more. You say at least, but scoring 13 runs or more. Um, offense was led by Chan Sisko in that first game. He had three hits, was robbed of a second home run in the game. He did hit the one, drove in five runs. What are your takes on that game and on Chan Sisko? Well, I mean, I guess this all falls under the, the category of can't predict baseball in a, in a season like this to, to set a record like that. Um, but, you know, I think any glimmer of hope that, that we see, uh, especially when it comes uh, with contributions from a guy like Cisco, who, um, you know, seems to factor into the plan at, at some level, uh, it, it's exciting to see. And it, it's really been good to see uh, his bat playing here at the, the major league level uh, since he came back up. Obviously, defense was more the, the focus with him there in the minors. But uh, he's one of those guys that given how well he did with the bat in spring training and how hard he's working to get back up to the majors, you like to see him have uh, have some success. So it's, it's been fun to see what he's been doing since he's been back. Yeah, it was nice to see because you saw in spring training, he was uh, hitting the ball out of the ballpark pretty routinely. Uh, they sent him down much to the chagrin of a lot of Orioles fans. Um, but then they, they bring him back up to the major league level. Last year, we were talking about this before the break, uh, he hit 242 at Norfolk, which was a career low after hitting 181 in this limited action in Baltimore. He's never hit more than seven home runs in any other year, and he's got 15 home runs combined between Norfolk and Baltimore this year. It's nice to see this guy swinging the bat. We know he's not going to catch for the Orioles in the future, maybe a backup at best, but it looks like they're probably going to have to find another position for him if his bat proves to be as special as it's looked over the last week or so. Yeah, that's been, been one of the things that's been interesting, especially as we talk about kind of the, the long-term plan. I, I was wondering, I, th- I think his, uh, his promotion back up roughly coincided with the draft. So you see all this hype around Adley Rutschman and, and what's happening there, and you wonder what that does for, for a guy like uh, Cisco, whether it's more motivating, whether it's thinking about, well, I need to, to switch positions. But he's definitely a, a guy I was thinking about in all the, the hype um, around the draft that you know, Cisco is there and, and now, you know, certainly doing good things with the bat. But um, it'll be interesting to see kind of what what his future is uh, and whether that does involve a, a position position switch or, or some other option. I would have to imagine that it would, because if his bat does play at the major league level like it did at the minor league level, and there's a reason he was a top 100 prospect and there's a reason he was the Orioles top prospect of just a few years ago you would have to imagine they want that bat in the lineup more often than not. And if he's going to be catching, he's not going to catch over Adley Rutschman. So I would imagine they would, they, they would have to switch positions or DH him or find something for him or use him as trade bait. But, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, now, he was a key cog in those back-to-back 13 to nothing wins. Uh, he homered again last night. But the Orioles have lost three straight since then. Now, they didn't swing the bats very well in any of these last three games. Um... But the game, the last two games were winnable. The bullpen came in and kind of did what they've been doing all year. And that's either put the game out of reach or, you know, just continue to give up runs. They don't really have a lot of guys. That they, they keep, you know, sending guys like um, Sean Gill Martin and Tanner Scott and Jimmy Yacobonis on the shuttle back and forth from Norfolk to Baltimore. Um, but right now... They don't have a lot of options at the major league level, but there are a couple of guys in the minor leagues who are pitching pretty well out of the bullpen. Former first-round picks who went from starters to relievers, and that's Dylan Tate and Hunter Harvey. Tate pitching to a 2.21 ERA with 21 strikeouts in 11 games as a reliever, covering 20 and third innings pitch. Fastball touching 96, which is nice to see. And Hunter Harvey just got promoted to Norfolk, 11 innings pitched as a reliever, no earned runs, one hit, 
two walks, 12 Ks, and is, he's been sitting about 98 miles an hour, and his fastball's been touching 101. What is your take on those two pitchers, and could we see them in Baltimore later this summer? Well, I think anything's possible, certainly, in terms of whether we, we see them in Baltimore. I think Harvey's one that's long been you know, of, of interest, um, you know, potential there, and then injury setbacks, and now seeming to really uh, – you know, have have that arm getting strong and, and presenting some possibilities. And, you know, it, it reminds me some of the, the previous dark days when they talked about the, the Calvary and all the you know, young starters they had and how many of those guys wound up, you know, ultimately in the bullpen, you know, with um, you know, guys like uh, Mattis and Britton that, that were going to be starters but ended up being uh, good bullpen, you know, contributors. And, you know, I think that's one of the things we saw as the Orioles, you know, built up to, to winning again, the, how important the bullpen is and the – um, you know, how that can really be a strength that, that you play off of. And now even with changes in the game where we're seeing the opener use some, that sort of thing. So I certainly think that, that there's a lot of value there and, um, you know, of, of potentially looking at guys as, as bullpen options. Um, and, and certainly right now, I mean, it, there's, there's no rush, um, but at the same time, it, it's heartbreaking. Like you see a game like uh, Monday night and if it's, if it's possible to have a heartbreaker in a season like this, I mean, to see Tom Eshelman, you know, go out and give you five strong innings, um, which was, I think, you know, probably that that performance overall more than a lot of folks expected. And then it's like immediately leaves the game and it's, you know, uh, Brandon Klein with the, the blown save. And I mean, just literally immediately just puts the guys on and then, you know, they're there were behind and there that goes that quickly. And um, again, big picture losing this season. You know, maybe not that big of a deal, but you got to figure that that, you know, just as it's a heartbreaker for fans who are still following the team, that's got to be tough. Um, you know, for all guys, including Klein, that, you know, certainly he doesn't want to come in and do that and um, has to feel bad that he couldn't make a, a stronger contribution. But hopefully with, you know, with we keep hearing about a lot of the young arms in the, in the minors and um, hopefully with all those arms that can hopefully materialize both into some some solid starters, but then also a, a solid bullpen, which will be obviously needed. Well, right, and, and, and it's like you said, if there can be a heartbreaker in the season, Brandon Klein comes in after, like you said, Eshelman goes five innings, gives up just the two runs he gave up in that first inning, and he comes in, he walks a leadoff hitter, allows the first two guys to reach, gives up a three-run homer to give Tampa Bay a lead that they never relinquished, and then he leaves the game. And for Brandon Hyde, it's you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? Because it was Eshelman's pitching really well. Why did you take him out after only five innings and 76 pitches? Uh, to let the bullpen give it up. So then the next day, Wojciechowski comes in, and he's pitching really well through five innings. He leaves him out there, and he gives up two more runs there in the sixth inning. Um, and so it's like, either way, the, the Orioles are getting hurt here. And so he doesn't really have a lot of options. You're hoping for something. And like you said, it's a lost season. It doesn't really matter. The, the wins and losses are really secondary in a season like this, right? So... It, you're basically just you want to see who's going to be who's going to stick on this major league roster who's going to be on the roster at the end of the rebuild a lot of these guys won't be here in two to three years but you have to have a reason for fans to come out and see the team watch the games on tv and right now this bullpen is not leaving is leaving a lot to be desired uh from orioles fans wouldn't you say oh so and uh and that is tough when you, you know, we do have uh, any interest left there to, to continue watching to, to see you know, decent starting pitching performance and um, you know, then the, the bullpen falling apart for you. And it's interesting you mentioned with, with Hyde, you know, as we try and get a read for what kind of manager is he, you think of bullpen management as, as part of the evaluation that goes on, but it's really hard to do with him. As you said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. 
Um, difficult to get a read on him given what's happening on, on both ends. Starter struggling, but you finally get a good game um, out, out of a guy, and then you know the bullpen falls apart. And you get a you know, starter that you try and extend, and, and you lose it there. And I, I found myself thinking back this morning to um, David Hess's you know, performance at the beginning of the season when it was, you know, should they have left Hess in with the, the no-hitter and you just thought, what's the, what's the mindset there, you know, to have that kind of performance and not, not even really come close to that since, you know, is there any looking back there and um, feeling regret? But I felt like that was an early part of the season where, you know, you're getting a feel for what kind of manager is, is Hyde and, um, you know, and you can have different reads on it, you know, whether it's a gutsy call to go out there and do that in a tough situation or whether he should have left him in. But it really is tough to get a, a, a read on bullpen management given the struggles that are there. And yeah, that's that's long been a story. Obviously, there's a lot of parts to a baseball team, but you know, that's one of the things that's really struck me um, this season. And 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 thinking back to the you know, the dark ages of the 14 straight losing seasons, where you know it was an atrocious bullpen back then, and then all of a sudden, when you know Orioles are having success 2012 onward, and so much of that built off of you know beating projections, surprising people, cobbling th- things together through the bullpen. Um, and now back to being a, a, an awful bullpen again. I mean, it's hard to construct a quality bullpen. It's such an important part. Um, and I think, if anything, that what we're seeing now gives even a greater appreciation for, you know, the, the art of that, of uh, not only managing it, but the first step of constructing a, a bullpen that can, uh, can really put things on lockdown for you. Well, you know, it's, it's, you mentioned that the Orioles had that great bullpen that was one of the main reasons they were so good from 2012 to 2016. And, but you can look at that bullpen and you can kind of start to see the deterioration of the Orioles' bullpen as a whole. It kind of coincides with the contract extension for Darren O'Day. You know, they signed him to that four-year extension. He was never healthy for a, a long period in any part of that contract. And then they end up trading him down over to the Braves along with um, Brad Brock and Kevin Galsman. And then the next thing you know, the bullpen is just a shell of its former self. You have Michael Givens, who's a a holdover and Richard Blyer and Richard Blyer's been p- pitching better recently and so has Michael Givens but they haven't been what they were the last couple of years out of that Orioles bullpen and it's amazing to see how quickly that bullpen deteriorated from being so good just a couple of years ago to now being the worst in baseball right now. Yeah it's been quite a drop off and, and you mentioned O'Day and that's an interesting case there because you know, at, at that time you know there were a lot of contracts that were, were coming up and a lot of questions about what the Orioles were going to do and I I remember O'Day, probably, probably like a lot of fans, was one that surprised me, you know, because the, there was talk about, you know, possibility of, of uh, getting signed by the Nationals, a lot of money being thrown at him, and um, to see them ante up and, and spend the money for you know, a guy in the, the bullpen um, like that, it was kind of a pleasant surprise, but then, you know, as you mentioned, with the injury concerns and everything else, um, winds up not being able to make the contribution that was, you know, was, was hoped for that he had made prior to that, but... Yeah, a really precipitous drop off, um, you know, and, and you know, obviously moving guys and trades are, are part of that. Um, but uh, you know, maybe, we'll, maybe as we were talking about earlier, we'll see some of these younger guys find you know, find roles in that bullpen um, and be able to kind of build that up and, and contribute, and including the guys that start off as, as you know potential starters with with strong arms, finding good use for uh, for them in the bullpen. Well, and that's one of the things where. You know, touching on your point about Brandon Hyde, um, I want to see how he deals with the bullpen once he gets, you know, livelier arms up there like a Dylan Tate and a Hunter Harvey. Uh, one of my biggest gripes with Hyde this season has been the way he's used Michael Givens. Any Orioles fan worth their salt 
knows that Michael Givens is a one-inning pitcher, and I've said it before on this show, Hyde uses him in two-inning situations a lot. At least he has to this point in the season. And that first inning, he's pretty good. He comes out for the second inning, and he usually gives it up. Uh, so th- that's my main gripe with Hyde. I think it's still too early to tell the type of manager he's going to be because he was really given a bad hand this year. He doesn't have a lot of Major League talent on his 25-man roster, but I feel like maybe we're getting a little bit of a glimpse into the kind of management he does in using Givens the way that he has. And for me, I mean, he even said that he was going to take Givens out of those high-leverage situations, and then he take, he brought him in in like the sixth or seventh inning in one game, and then he had him back pitching in the ninth inning again the next day. Uh, so... So far, I don't necessarily like what I'm seeing out of Hyde, the way he manages the bullpen. But again, when you don't have a ton of arms, you kind of tend to lean heavily on the arms that you do have. So I can understand that, but it remains to be seen. Yeah, and Hyde is such an interesting case for me overall um, because you know, he's obviously put in a situation where the expectations are, are so low. And, and to some degree, there's um, you know perhaps a, a hope for losing you know, as part of a larger plan to get draft picks. But you know, no manager you know, with with any level of competitiveness is going to go out and and think like, yeah, we're you know we're just laying back here. We're going to try and lose anything like that. But I also think just what what is the long term you know role for him? Is is he a guy that's filling in until they get to the uh, to the days of winning, um, or is he a guy that potentially is is there over the long haul? And I think that a lot of these judgments will help to to fill that in. But again, hard to get a read for him. Given you know perhaps like you're saying a, a test case to see how he might do. With the bullpen, but it's interesting to see as some of these young arms come up, um, and you've got more options there. How he manages that, but then also how he manages the the, the both the, the arms themselves with the young guys, but also the psyche of the young guys, because that's going to be a, a big part of it too. I mean, you, how many guys do you see that have great stuff, but you know the pitching at the major league level? I think mentally, there's a whole different mental game there. Um, so managing those young guys in, in that regard and putting them in positions to build confidence and not destroy their confidence will be a big part of that, I think, too. And you mentioned those young guys that, you know, have those electric arms, but it's not showing at the major league level. And the first two guys that come to mind, and we mentioned them a little bit earlier in the show, is, are Tanner Scott and Jimmy Yacobonis. These are guys who have put up big minor league numbers. Their stuff is absolutely nasty. But then they get to the major league level, they they can't throw they can't throw their pitches consistently for strikes. They walk a lot of guys, and then trying to get back into counts after falling behind, they end up giving up a lot of home runs. Tanner Scott just pitched last night, uh, two innings, no hits, no walks, five strikeouts for Norfolk, but he can't seem to do that at the major league level. Yeah, and a big big part of this too is we as we think um, just the overall the newness of the kind of organization now and the direction we're headed with all the the new leadership. Um, a big part of that too is is player development, right? And so, as we think about preparing the guys for you know, for the major league level to bring them up there, um, you know, how can we go about evaluating the player development so that they bring guys up that uh, that are ready and and ready to produce? And you know, especially with, I guess, with any position, but um, I would think maybe especially so with with pitchers, there's going to be that that transition. It's going to be difficult. There's learning that needs to take place, but it also stands out more where. When you see a hitter come up and he's struggling to adjust to major league pitching, you kind of know, okay, over time he's going to going to learn the pitchers and can do some you know, study there. But um, while pitchers can also do study, you also do wonder when they really just have such great stuff and you see it there. Um, how do you get that to translate at the major league level, and what role does the development play, um, or is it really just the, kind of the the mental part of it of 
um, you know, really struggling to, to adjust mentally. I mean, it's been interesting in the, the starter role to see um, Dylan Bundy, you know, for kind of having ups and downs all season, seeing at least an effort to kind of adjust his repertoire and what he's throwing this season. Um, a guy that seems to throughout his entire youth, you know, just he's this flamethrower. I mean, I actually went, went to watch him uh, when the Orioles first got him. Uh, I think it was his first his first um, minor league pitching debut, and it was it was just him overpowering, you know, eighteen year old kids at the the lowest levels of, of the minor leagues, but just a, a power guy through and through. But it seems like someone has gotten the message to him now about, hey, you're not you're not you know you're not that guy anymore. You're not going to be able to power past um, big league hitters, so you need to switch up your stuff. And so I've been interested to see what they're doing with him. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see with uh, with the pitching side of it to see, you know. What do we see in terms of pitch selection, pitch variation, guys learning to do more than just try and, you know, pump up fastballs and just just place them because if that if you can't locate him at the the big league level, it's my dad my dad always says, Hey, any guy at the big league levels, you know, he can he can hit a hundred mile an hour fastball uh, if it's straight down you know, straight down the pike. So um, you know, seeing how these guys mix it up and what else they can do, uh, especially when the location's not working, I think we'll also say something about what the organization is doing in terms of development of these guys. Well, right. And I think that uh, a, a perfect example of a guy who doesn't have necessarily overpowering stuff, but he can locate his pitches is John Means. And he's the Orioles lone all-star representative this year. And we'll get into that in a second. But that's a guy who, you know, he, he can touch the mid-90s with his fastball, but he usually sits about 91 to 93 with his fastball. But he has that devastating changeup that even when, pitch, when players know it's coming, they can't touch it. And that's a guy who wasn't on the Orioles' radar really at all, and then he was the final roster spot out of spring training. And the next thing you know, he's got a 250 ERA, and he's going to be pitching in the All-Star game next Tuesday. Yeah, and a season of few good stories, he really is a, is a good one. Um, and it's almost like I've been holding my breath and waiting for it to kind of catch up with him of how long can he do this. But uh, he's been been solid. He's been, been consistent. Um, and and it's, it's fun to see a guy, you know, it's, it's, it's different um, in some regards, see a guy doing so much off of his changeup. You know, you don't, don't hear a lot of people getting excited about, man, this guy has a great changeup. You know, you're always hearing about, um, you know, the, the kind of the filthy stuff and the, you know, I-90s, that sort of thing. So it's, it's fun, and, and it thinks, you know, speaks more kind of to the, to the art of pitching um, and you know, how guys, and, and we've, we've seen examples, you know, for a lot of different teams of guys that, you know, may, may like you're saying, may touch the, you know, the low 90s. Um, they're not going to overpower you, but they can just spot their pitches. You know, they can disguise it well um, and can get by on stuff where, you know, guys, uh, guys are up there whiffing or, or watching it go by. So he's been a really fun story, and it's, um, and it's been interesting to kind of see what he's been doing, um, uh, kind of a rare bright spot this season. Oh, I absolutely agree. And it kind of reminds me of, if you recall, back in 2009, Brad Bergeson, who was a guy that didn't really have anything that wowed you in his arsenal, but was pitching really well for the Orioles, had a sub-4 ERA, and he was like the lone bright spot on that 2009 Orioles team. Um, and that's what I, I think of when I look at John Means. This is a guy you're waiting for the other, the other shoe to drop, but, you know, confidence breeds confidence. And this is a guy who's pitching with a lot of confidence, and he's going out there, and he's pitching thinking, these guys can't touch me. And so far, for the majority of the season, they haven't been able to. Now, I'd like to see him lower his pitch count and be able to get past five or six innings routinely. But on a team where nobody's pitching particularly well, I'll take five innings of one-run ball more often than not. Uh, just thank God there's no 
Billy Butler in the league anymore to hit a line drive off a of shin. Am I right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was thinking every time I hear Bergeson because it, it was similar, right? It's a, it's a lone bright spot. You've got a team that's um, doing poorly and, and done poorly for a while, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, this guy, you know, this guy could be something. He could be part of the future there. Um, I think I was listening to that game at work when he, he took the um, line drive off the shin, and it was like, gosh, is this really happening? And then what was it? Was it the following season where he injured his arm doing like a – commercial or something, something oh my god yeah yeah it was I, I forgot about that he was doing a commercial for masson and he injured his arm doing that yeah so it's like he had that i mean because at, at 2009 i guess i think that was his rookie year and it was it's like here's a guy that's part of the future and just those things happen and all of a sudden it's like you know it feeds into that feeling of man there really is something about this organization that you know that a guy with that much promise would have kind of these quirky things happen to him so let's let's protect John Means and not put him in any uh, any massing commercials. What do you say? Uh, no, I, I agree, right? And it's funny, I do remember watching that game, and I think it was a Sunday afternoon game against the Royals. And when he took that line drive off the shin, he hobbled off the mound, got the out at, the, at first base, but the sound of the ball hitting his shin was louder than the crack of the bat. And that's when you knew something was wrong because it, a ball bo bouncing off a bone shouldn't be louder than the ball hitting the bat. Yeah, yeah. But now that we've talked about nothing but depressing stuff for the last 20-plus uh, minutes, let's move on to something a little bit funner uh, for our fans and for us to talk about, and that's Utah Street home runs. And you hit me up the other day saying this is something you wanted to talk about, and I fully agreed with you. Uh, Chance Sisko and Anthony Sant Santander uh, went back-to-back -back days hitting home runs on the Utah Street. Uh, they were the 99th and 100th Utah Street home runs of all time, and they were the 44th and 45th uh, home runs by Orioles. Uh, according to Rob Daniels, and he's at Orioles Factoids on Twitter, the Orioles have hit 15 of the last 21 home runs on the Utah Street after only hitting 31 of the first 79. So really kind of climbing back up into the rankings there. Yeah, I've, I've long been a fan of Utah Street home runs. and I feel like it's one of the underrated and underappreciated parts of, of the Camden Yards experience overall. I mean, it, took a tour uh, of the stadium a couple summers ago. I hadn't done it since the ballpark opened. And it's one of those things where you see visiting fans come in, and as they're going through the tour, uh, or even before it starts, they're staring down at the pavement, looking at these baseballs and trying to figure out if one of the guys from their team you know, is, is out there um, on the walkway. And so it's fun, and it gives a kind of a connection for any fan to, to see there. Um, and as we got to, you know, I, I had actually looked, you know, a few weeks ago just to see what the count was. And I thought, man, we're about to reach 100 Utah Street home runs. That seems significant. And then I was also surprised because there hadn't been any hit, you know, this season where I thought, man, for as much as the ball has been going out of the ballpark around Major League Baseball, for the Orioles pitching struggles, it seems like there should be several. But then, you know, there's all of a sudden, you know, back to back days, Cisco, Santander and you know, we're looking at 100, but not a lot of fanfare over it. And so that's kind of been the, the question for me of, you know, why isn't it a bigger deal? Um, and it's kind of, I, I don't even say it's lost its luster. I mean, there was a long, you know, question of, um, you know, first guy to get out there and then so much focus on the warehouse itself, um, but not as much focus on, on Utah Street. Um, but I was glad to see that, it, you know, at least there were some mentions of it being the, the 100th. But I, I'd still like to see more attention to it. I think it's a neat, a neat thing. I think it does bring in, um, connect other fans to our ballpark. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, even though it's happened now a hundred times, it's still um, not as common as if you look at the nearest comparison I think of 
uh, is out in San Francisco. Now the splashdown has a very cool visual element, right? Like every time one goes out and you see the kayaks and you know <clears throat> the ball go into McCovey Cove, like that's just a really cool visual that you, you can't match. But it's also, I was looking at it's a lot more common. It happens um, a lot more frequently out there, but it still seems to have that same charm to it. So I, I would just love to see kind of more attention to the Utah Street home run and more excitement around it. And so I, I was happy to see the, the 100th and, and felt like there was some significance there. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, um, it's one of those things you mentioned, you know, it's happened 100 times, but it's happened 100 times in 28 seasons uh, of Camden Yards baseball. So you would think that there would be more than that. I mean, that's, that's less than four a year. And on top of that, you would like to see the Orioles, and you mentioned this to me, maybe do some promotions for it. If, you know, somebody hits, if, if an Orioles player hits a ball onto Utah Street, free hot dogs for everybody in attendance. If an Orioles player or any player hits the warehouse, how about a free ticket to the ball game for everybody in attendance? I mean, when your team's 37 games under 500 in the beginning of July, you need a reason to get fans into the ballpark. And they think, hey, I have a shot at getting a free hot dog, or hey, I have a shot at getting a free ticket to another game. You could get more people in the stands. Yeah, and that's... Uh, um... That, that's one where I think a, a part of where the luster is lost with it is that, you know, I've, I've seen plenty of times in the past where there's been a Utah Street home run, but as they're, you know, announcing the game, it's not clear. It's like, well, it looks like that one might have reached Utah Street. Uh, and so I think that's that's part of it, too, that there's not that kind of instant excitement or gratification to it. And, and I could certainly see building a promotion around it. Uh, I was reading an article for The Sun the other day where they were talking about how the Orioles you know, in their analytics push, you're also doing analytics around just fans and ticket sales and what gates they enter and when they come in and all these different factors to kind of make the ballpark experience something special. And as you say, I think that's something that you could build some uh, some promotions around the Utah Street home run that gives it, you know, a little more attention and also makes it, you know, exciting for fans to, you know, to, to pay some attention, maybe come to the ballpark and um, you know, even though uh, Griffey hit the warehouse in the the um, home run derby, uh, I still think there's a uh, you know something to to be said for will this you know happen during a game and who might do that and you know maybe it's been long enough where people think it won't happen. But I look at a guy like uh, Nomar Mazara down there in in Texas who I was checking the other day because I saw his uh, his home run there in late June. Uh, where he reached the upper reaches of the stadium in Texas, and that was my first thought of like, man, if he'd hit that in Camden Yards, that's probably a, you know, a warehouse shot. So, um, and, and looking, that was a 505 foot shot to right field. Oh, that definitely—that's like halfway up the warehouse. Yeah, that's a warehouse ball, and then I guess I think he's got two of the three longest. That was the top one this season, and then he had a 482 foot shot uh, back in March. So that's a guy where I'm thinking, man, September it might be fun just to see. You know, what if, if you get to hold the one um, there? But I think certainly you can build promotions around Utah Street itself and then absolutely, you know, something around the, the warehouse uh, to, to, to continue to build, build that up is uh, an exciting thing. Well, yeah, and the warehouse is, is what makes Camden Yards one of the gems of baseball ballparks um, around the league. And the Texas Rangers, you mentioned, they do come to Baltimore in September. It should be still humid enough to get the to get the ball out of the ballpark. And they have Nomar Mazzara, and they have Joey Gallo in that lineup. So that could be something that we could really look forward to. And maybe we'll finally see a ball hit a warehouse during a regular season game. But, hey, Matt, really appreciate you coming on the show. We're just about out of time. 
Um, really great stuff from you today. Do you want to give any promotions or um, do a plug for yourself here? Yeah, just uh, you know, pay a visit to the, the website, roarfrom34.com. That recently got a kind of a facelift. Um, and I'm pretty active overall uh, on Twitter throughout the season and at roarfrom34. I love interacting with, with fans and, and talking baseball. So um, you know, give, give it a look. Well, yeah, everybody go over and check out Roarfrom34.com. I was just looking at the website earlier today. It's a really nice-looking website, and he actually has an article up about how the Orioles shouldn't boo, boo Joey Rickard when he comes to town, and that was an interesting read. So, um, yeah, everybody go check it out. Matt, thanks so much for joining us, and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. It was a great show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely, man. We'll talk soon. See you. All right. And that's going to do it for me from the payoff pitch presented by DNL Window Tending on Fanimal Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Valley. Thanks for joining us this week. You can follow me at Paul Valley the Third on Twitter or at the Payoff Pitch One if you want to follow the show. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, everybody, just keep in mind I'm going to be on vacation next week, so there's not going to be the Payoff Pitch or the Payoff Pitch Prospect Report. But uh, stay tuned. Two weeks from now, we'll be doing another show. Until then, we'll see you soon and go O's.